you guys are accustomed to a, a story from Christian history. Uh, this morning will be a little bit different. I'm going to tell a story to the kids. Uh, parents, you are welcome to listen in. Uh, although you may have to ask for your kids to give you an explanation of some of these things. Six centuries before the birth of Jesus, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, began having dreams. And he was so troubled by the dreams that he couldn't sleep. So Nebuchadnezzar gathered his magicians, his sorcerers, and astrologers, and he ordered them not just to interpret his dream, but to tell him what the dream was and then interpret it for him. He figured that if, if they could do that, then they were the real deal, and he could trust their interpretation. And if they couldn't, he would have them torn limb from limb. Of course, they couldn't do it, and Nebuchadnezzar ordered the captain of the guard, a man named Arioch, to round them up and kill them all. Among those who were to be torn limb from limb was a young exile from Jerusalem named Daniel. God had given Daniel a gift for understanding visions and dreams. Daniel and his three friends begged God for mercy, and in a vision of the night, God revealed the dream and its interpretation. Arioch rushed Daniel to the presence of the king, and the king said to Daniel, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has made known to the king what will be in the latter days. The king's dream was this. Before him stood a large, exceedingly bright, and terrifying image. The head of the image was gold. Its chest and arms were silver. Its middle and thighs were bronze. And its legs were iron. Its feet were a mix of iron and clay. And as the king looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them to pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. And here's the interpretation. The head of gold, said Daniel, was, the, was King Nebuchadnezzar and the kingdom of Babylon. After Babylon, two more kingdoms would arise. Each kingdom would be inferior to the previous one. These two kingdoms were probably Medo-Persia and Greece. The fourth kingdom would be strong like iron, but unstable. This would be Rome. Then in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom. Now this is the mysterious fifth and final kingdom in the dream. This kingdom shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. 
Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, our great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. So two reasons for that story this morning. First, the language in our text this morning, the language of mystery being revealed, is rooted in Daniel chapter 2. There is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And second, the prophetic mystery of the stone in the everlasting kingdom to come is wonderfully intertwined with the mystery in this morning's text. Well, as you know, we're in the last paragraph of chapter one of Paul's letter to the church in Colossae. Paul just painted a magnificent picture of Christ as the exalted and supreme Lord of all creation and as the supreme Lord of the new creation that was in the offing. In verse 24, which we learned about last week, Paul shifted to the body of his letter. He's telling the Colossians a little bit about his ministry. He's doing that not so much because they'd never met him and didn't know him, though that was true, but because he wanted them to understand that his role as a servant of the church and as a steward of the mysteries of God undergirded his passion to see them spiritually mature and free from the soul-killing heresy that was influencing their new church. So the first thing that Paul told them about his ministry was what Josh preached about last week, that he found joy in suffering for their sake. A very odd thing to say. He found joy in suffering for their sake, and his afflictions were for the sake of the church. Now in verse 25, the church for whose sake I suffer, Paul wrote, is the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. Let's take these two verses, one phrase at a time, of which I became a minister. It's funny how words take on the barnacles of time and end up meaning something different than what they originally meant. I had someone, a young guy, tell me that my motorcycle was sick. That means something very different to me than I think it meant to him. I thought it ran just fine. I think, I think he meant that it was cool, which is another one of those words that has taken on the barnacles of time. We tend to think of the word minister as a title for someone, like a pastor who officiates weddings or baptisms or other services in a church. But that's not exactly what the word means, although it can be used as a title. It's the same word that where we get the title deacon, which is the office of a church leader who serves specific needs within the body. But the word itself simply means servant. Paul was a servant of the church. It's the same word that Paul used of Epaphras when he called him a faithful minister of Christ, back up in verse 7. And it's the same word that Jesus used in Matthew 20 when he told his disciples, and whoever would be great among you must be your servant. 
Paul seems to have adopted this word for himself, and he used it in a few different ways. To the church in Rome, he called himself a servant of Christ Jesus. To the church in Ephesus, he called himself a servant of the gospel. That's the same language he used a few verses earlier in this chapter. To the church in Corinth, Paul called himself a servant of the new covenant. And here he calls himself a servant or minister of the church. So I'm sure you're wondering, if it's the same word then, then why is it translated minister instead of deacon or servant, since they're all the exact same? Well, here's my best guess. It seems that when the word is used of a servant acting as an agent or intermediary, that's like a middleman, like when the apostles are entrusted as servant agents or couriers of the gospel, in that situation, the ESV usually translates the word as minister instead of servant. But the basic meaning is the same. Paul was a servant, and he was a servant of the church. By that, Paul meant the church at large. We saw that last week when Paul said that his sufferings were for the sake of Christ's body, that is, the church, not just a specific local congregation. That's why Paul could say that he suffered for the sake of the church in Colossae, even though he'd never met them. The the Colossian Christians were part and parcel of Paul's God-given ministry. Continuing in verse 25, Paul became a minister And it was according to the stewardship from God. Not only was Paul a servant, but he was a steward. His position as a servant of the church was according to or fitting or suitable to or in agreement with a stewardship, another word we don't use often. A stewardship is the responsibility of management or control over something like the management or administration of a large household. The work of a steward is like the work of an estate manager. A stewardship is a commission, and it comes with management responsibilities. It is a sacred trust. Here's how Paul used the word when he wrote to the church in Ephesus. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, and any cuts himself off, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. Paul, or God gave Paul the responsibility of managing something for the Ephesians. And that something is what he called God's grace. And it's what I'm calling the mysteries of God. I call it that for two reasons. First, because we see it in the very next verse in our passage, verse 26. And two, because Paul used that exact same language when he wrote to the church in Corinth. He told them that they should regard the apostles as servants of Christ and as stewards of the mysteries of God. It's very similar to the language in our passage Here's another example of how Paul used the term stewardship. He wrote this to the church in Corinth as well. And it shows us that part of his responsibilities, part of his management responsibilities as a steward was preaching the gospel. For if I preach the gospel, he wrote to them, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. 
Or if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. Paul calls his stewardship a necessity that was laid upon him and with which he was entrusted. We'll see more of Paul's stewardship and what it entailed in the coming weeks as we finish this chapter. For now, though, let's just note three things about Paul's stewardship. One, note the source of Paul's stewardship. God gave it to him. The stewardship was from God. Paul didn't invent this thing. It was laid upon him. I think we get a glimpse of when that happened in Acts chapter 9. Saul, who would later become Paul, was on his way to Damascus. You know the account. He was vested with authority from the chief priests to arrest and imprison those blaspheming followers of Jesus. And suddenly a blinding light from heaven shone around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and here's the key, and I will, and you will be told what you are to do. And the Lord appeared in a vision to a disciple named Ananias and told him to go lay hands on Paul and restore his sight. Go, the Lord said, for Paul is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. I think that was the beginning of Paul's commission of his stewardship, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Paul received his stewardship directly from the risen Christ. Number two, note the beneficiary. I tried to think of a smaller word for that, but I just couldn't. Note the, the person, note the ones who are to receive the benefit of Paul's stewardship. God gave it to Paul for the benefit of the Colossians. And as we've seen for the benefit of the church at large, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. That is for the believers in the church at Colossae. Paul's stewardship was for the church. That's why Paul had such an interest in the well-being of these Christians. That's why Paul prayed and labored over this group of people whom he'd never met. And that's why Paul was so concerned about the false teaching that was beginning to encroach upon their church. You see, this false teaching directly undermined the sufficiency of what had been revealed in the mystery with which he was entrusted by God for them. And number three, note the purpose of Paul's stewardship. God gave the stewardship to him. It was for the benefit of the Colossians, and it had a single purpose, which was to make the Word of God fully known the mystery hidden for ages and generations. The purpose of Paul's stewardship was to make the Word of God fully known. And to be clear, Paul specified that by the Word of God, he meant the very mystery with which he was entrusted. We need to unpack that. What was this mystery? Paul uses that word about 21 times in his letters it means a secret, a secret practice, or a hidden teaching. 
The idea of being secret could lead to some misunderstanding. This mystery was not completely secret, nor was it entirely hidden. It was hidden by degrees. It was there in the Old Testament. It could be seen, but it was concealed under what John Calvin called the dark coverings of words and ceremonies. You see, this mystery is more like the mystery in a mystery novel. There are clues from the very first chapter about who committed the crime, but it's hidden from the reader to a degree and then revealed by the end of the book. That's the idea of mystery as Paul uses it here. It is a thing hidden or concealed to one degree or another. Well, that's simple enough, but what is this mystery that Paul's talking about? This verse doesn't actually tell us, so to define it, we need to look at the other three times that Paul used this word in his letter. The very next time he uses it is in the next verse, and he defines it as Christ in you. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you. Now, I need to be very careful here because Josh is going to preach on that passage next week. So that's his sermon, not mine. But by way of introduction to this mystery, Paul tells us that the mystery is Christ in you. Paul uses the word again in chapter 2, verse 2. He told the Colossians he wanted them to know how much he struggled for them and for the nearby church in Laodicea and for everyone who had not seen him face to face. That gives us some insight into how Paul viewed his stewardship. He desired that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. So again, he defined the mystery as Christ. We see something similar in chapter 4, verse 3. Paul is asking for prayer before he signs off. At the same time, pray also for us, he tells the Colossians, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. So the mystery is the mystery of Christ. If we compare those passages with how Paul uses mystery in the letter to the Ephesians, the picture becomes very clear. The mystery at its most fundamental level is Christ. Of course, there's more to it than that, but we will just have to wait until next week for Josh to flesh it out for us. But two things we learn about this mystery from our text this morning. One, it was hidden. It was concealed for ages and generations, which meant that it was concealed to a degree from those living in former times. And two, it is now revealed to God's holy ones, his saints. The mystery is now revealed. That language comes directly from Daniel chapter 2. There is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. Well, that opens to us a whole world of mind-blowing truths about Christ in the Old Testament. These are truly wonderful things that we can't even begin to scratch the surface of this morning, but let me try to introduce it like this. There's a wonderful account in Luke chapter 24 about two disciples on the very day of the resurrection. One disciple was named Cleopas, and the other disciple is not named. 
They were walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus, and that was about seven miles away. And they met the risen Jesus on the road, but they were kept from recognizing who he was. The conversation is remarkable. The disciples told Jesus what had happened over the past few days, that the chief priests, the rulers, had condemned Jesus to death and then crucified him. And then they said to Jesus, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. That's in verse 21. That tells us that they were very much aware of what the Old Testament taught about the Messiah, that he would come and redeem or deliver Israel. But the time and the identity of the Messiah was still a mystery to them. They told Jesus that women had found the tomb empty and that reportedly Jesus was alive. And here's how Jesus responded. O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Don't you wish you could have been there? From the first book of Moses to the oracles of the prophet Malachi, Jesus explaining what these ancient scrolls said about him. And what mysteries Jesus revealed, we don't know for sure. But if he started at the beginning, maybe he showed them Genesis 3.15. Of course, that's a silly way of saying it. There weren't verses back then. Verses wouldn't come until about 1,500 years later. Nevertheless, maybe he showed them Genesis 3.15 and revealed the mystery of the serpent crusher. You see, as God leveled judgment against the serpent, the woman, and the man because of their rebellion against him in the garden, he spoke these mysterious words to the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Mysterious words, yes, but in them we find the very first proclamation of the gospel. The mystery is Christ. He is the offspring of the woman that would one day crush the serpent's head, though he himself would be bruised. So maybe Jesus revealed to these two disciples that he was the mysterious serpent crusher of Genesis 3.15. Or maybe he showed them Deuteronomy 18.18 and revealed that he was the mysterious Moses-like prophet that God would raise up and put his own words in his mouth. Or maybe he showed him Isaiah 7 and Isaiah 9 and revealed that he was the mysterious child given divine names, born of a virgin, and who would one day deliver Israel and establish a kingdom that would last forever. Or maybe he showed them Isaiah 53 and revealed that he was the mysterious suffering servant who was crushed for the sins of his people and wounded and bruised by that serpent. Or maybe he took them to Daniel chapter 2 and revealed that he was the rock cut from a mountain not made by human hand that would destroy kingdoms and establish a kingdom that would never be destroyed. I don't know exactly what Jesus revealed to Cleopas and the other disciple but we do know that they were so captivated by what he taught them that they asked him to stay. 
And when he was at table with them, this is in verses 28 through 32, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us as we talked to us, as he talked to us on the road while he opened to us the scriptures? Oh, to have a burning heart. Well, that's a lot of ground to cover this morning, but there's still something even more profound in this mystery, and Josh will introduce that to us next week, but here's the question I want to ask. What are we to do with this? What are we to do with this mystery revealed? Well, let me suggest five ways that we can take the truths from these two verses and apply them to our lives as we walk out of this building this morning. Number one, we should take serious our roles as servants of the church. Many of you do. You're faithful servants of Christ's bride. You serve your brothers and sisters week in and week out with God-glorifying joy, and you stir up everyone around you to love and good works. There are others, though, who recoil a bit at the thought of being a servant of the church. You may have a low view of her and prefer to say that you're a servant of God and not of the church. I would just encourage you this morning to consider the words Paul wrote to the husbands at the church in Ephesus. In telling them how they were to love their wives, Paul makes an explicit statement about how Christ loved the church. He wrote, husbands... Love your wives. How? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Why? That he may sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Consider then the high honor and privilege of being a servant of the assembly of the holy ones who Christ loved in such a manner as that. It's true, we're not apostles like Paul. Our stewardship, the stewardship that's laid upon us is not the same as his, but how could we not love and serve the church that was so precious to Christ that he would come as the suffering servant and shed his blood for her? So I would encourage you to take seriously your role as a servant of the church. And the second application is similar to the first. Number two, take seriously your stewardship from God. Again, we're not apostles, but God has given each of us gifts that come with a stewardship, a sacred trust. And with those gifts come responsibilities from God, such as using them to serve one another. As each has received a gift, use it, to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. 1 Peter 4, take seriously your stewardship from God and use your gifts, brothers and sisters, to serve one another. Number three, teach the mystery made known, the mystery of Christ to your children. When God gave the law to Israel, he told them, you shall teach them diligently to your children. And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house 
and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. The law was meant to permeate every aspect of their life. And God gave parents the primary responsibility for teaching it to their children. That's one reason we encourage parent-led discipleship at Living Water Church. In the New Testament, though, the command to do this is aimed directly at fathers. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. These are Paul's words. But bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So fathers, I'm speaking to you now. Teach Christ to your children. Don't let them get their instruction from veggie tales. They might learn about King Nebuchadnezzar, but they might never learn that Christ was the rock in his dream and that Christ's kingdom is the one that will someday fill the earth and never come to an end. Teach your children about Jesus, the serpent crusher, the Moses-like prophet, the virgin-born child, and the servant that suffered for the sins of his people. Teach the mystery made known to your children. Number four, and this should cause us to worship, marvel at the grace of God revealed in this mystery. Marvel that God condescended even to speak mysteries to sinful rebels like you and me. And then in time to make those mysteries known to our little ant brains. For him to descend was far beneath his loftiness. That's a quote from John Calvin, who said that to accommodate our slight capacity, that's, how, that's what I translated as ant brains, to accommodate our slight capacity, God had to speak baby talk like a nurse to an infant. To do this, he must descend far beneath his loftiness. Marvel that he spoke these mysteries to us. Marvel that the offended one had a plan for saving mankind, his offenders. What grace are we dealing with? Marvel that he made that plan known, though it was shrouded in mystery for ages and generations. He never left his people without hope. The gospel, as we saw, was proclaimed on the very day that man plunged himself into the abyss of sin and death. Let that truth strike you. On the very day that we rebelled against our Creator, He proclaimed the gospel. Marvel that He unfolded this mystery for thousands of years and then fully revealed it in Christ. And marvel that you and I are so blessed to live on this side of the great revealing of this mystery. We no longer live under the dark coverings of words and ceremonies, but we see Christ clearly. Let that fuel your worship. And lastly, let's proclaim this mystery made known. Proclaim Christ. Like Paul, let's preach the unsearchable riches of Christ and bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God. See, that's how we aim to fulfill our mission at Living Water Church. 
We desire to form passionate followers of Jesus here, and we do that by proclaiming the gospel of the glory of God. That is the unsearchable riches of Christ. And let this morning's text shape the way we proclaim that message to our neighbors and our bosses and our barbers. What we're proclaiming is a mystery that God reveals. In the deepest sense, this mystery cannot be known unless God reveals it. You see, the hearer can know. He can intellectually know the facts of this mystery made known, but he can never experience the radical change of heart that comes from the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit unless God reveals it to him. I always think about the illustration of honey. This mystery can be known like honey can be known by someone who's never tasted it. So we can talk about the color of honey and the viscosity and the sugar content. And we can talk about a lot of things and you can know a lot of things about honey. But you really don't know honey until you take a bit of it on your finger and you touch it to your tongue. And then you know honey. And that's the knowing that I'm talking about. So what that means is that you can rest in God's sovereignty over the salvation of those souls for whom you are so concerned. Proclaim Christ. Proclaim the mystery. Pray that God would deliver them from their slavery to sin. Pray that he would take out their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. Pray that he will cause them to be born again and then trust. Trust that he will do what brings him the greatest glory and what will bring you the greatest joy? We proclaim Christ. It is God who makes the mystery known. It is God who opens the eyes of the blind. And it is God who raises sinners who are dead in their sins. And I think that as Paul would attest, this great mystery is worth suffering for and worth toiling for. Let me pray for us. Father, as we think about the grand scope of the ages and generations, that this mystery was covered in dark words and ceremonies. Father, we just offer you thankful hearts for allowing us to see Christ so clearly in the pages of the New Testament. Father, we thank you that you have not only made that mystery known as facts, but that you have shown the light into our heart and you have awakened us and we know this mystery. Father, I pray for those here who do not know Christ. I pray that you would awaken them. Father, I pray that you would give them a taste of what they do not know. Father, I pray that you would awaken their hearts. And Father, for those who are yours, Father, I ask that you would give them the boldness to proclaim this mystery loud and clear. Father, I pray that this mystery would cause their hearts to worship. Father, I pray that you would do that work in our heart this morning, do that work in my heart as well. 
Father, as we worship you, Father, we want to worship with hearts that are full of gratitude and that marvel over the grace that you have bestowed upon us in this mystery. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.